don't forget, you're going to die. Welcome back to the We Croak podcast. I am your host, Hansa Bergwall. And if you're enjoying all these conversations we're having about death and all the other things we don't talk about enough, subscribe, tell your friends. We're growing and it's really exciting. And it makes us excited to keep booking amazing authors for you to listen to. And today we're going to be taking a fearless look at the system, you know, how people actually are dying in our medical institutions and our, you know, basically how we treat our elders and how we treat people who are terminal in their diagnosis. And it's not always pretty, but we have a great guide for you here today. It's an author named Anne Newman. She is, her book, The Good Death, An Exploration of Dying in America, looks deeply into how we actually die in America and treat people in the ways it doesn't always live up to our values. Anne Newman is also the former visiting scholar at the Center for Religion and Media at New York University, as well as a contributing editor, editor to a number of uh, magazines and great places of journalism, most notably Harper's Magazine, which we will talk about her latest piece in the episode as well. So without further ado, here we go. Thank you, Anne Newman, for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Hansa. Yeah, I have your book here, The Good Death, An Exploration of Dying in America. And uh, for our listeners out there, it kind of opens with your personal story of living through and being a caretaker for your father's dying experience and how hard that was and how much you felt let down by our healthcare system. And I, I just wondered if you could start by telling a little bit about that story. Yeah, my father was diagnosed at the age of 50 with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and I had no idea what the prognosis would be or how, how all of this would go down. He was not one to talk openly about what was going on, although he was very adamant that he wanted to die at home. Um, so we weren't privy to his doctor until the very end of his life when he decided to stop. Um, I think they had, you know, one or two more experimental treatments that perhaps could have, you know, offered him hope, but not any real shot at living longer. And he decided, you know, you can keep that drug. I'm, I'm going to go home. I'm ready to die. And it was then that um, we were, I, my sister and I were introduced to this whole process that millions of Americans experience regularly. I've, I have two friends right now who are going through this with their own parents, but because my father was so young, he was 60 when he ultimately died. I kind of went through it before my age cohort and uh, found that I was absolutely unprepared. We got dad home and by all accounts, you could say that he had the ideal death and yet I was still absolutely unable to understand what was taking place around me. So I was really pissed off, to be honest, that the hospice workers hadn't told me, that my family members hadn't prepared me, that the doctors were, you know, not more forthcoming about the emotional and physical labor that goes into helping someone through their last days and weeks. And I came out of that kind of um, shaken loose and, and not really knowing what to do. And so I let it sit for about a year and a half. And, and then I was like, this is 
this is still with me in a, in a very present and damaging way. I need to figure it out. And so I put on my journalist hat and jumped right into really intense research, which involved becoming a hospice volunteer. And I volunteered both in an in-hospital hospice uh, program as well as in people's homes. And throughout the book, you see the individuals that I write about are from all walks of life. You know, there's, um, there's Mr. C who's, you know, living out the last days of a 25 year diagnosis with Parkinson's in the projects under the Williamsburg bridge. He, uh, on the Manhattan side, um, Puerto Rican who had been in New York for most of his life, but definitely not, a family that could afford full-time care. And, you know, the contrast would be this very wealthy family that I also volunteered with for five years, it turned out, um, a, a, a white doctor, and she was dying of lung cancer and other afflictions. And they lived in a 3,000-square-foot apartment on Central Park West. And so these experiences, on top of national reporting, uh, you know, church basements, hospice programs, you know, nurses, priests. I talked to pretty much everybody. I went to Montana to interview the daughter of the man whose case legalized aid and dying there. I went to Oregon to speak to Sue Porter, who one is, is one of the leading advocates for aid and dying in that state and has been there for years doing this work. And all, basically all over the country and looking into various issues that relate to end of life, um, whether it's VSED, voluntary stopping eating and drinking or, um, you know, advanced directives and that sort of thing. And so this research was really compelling to me. I think I was kind of working out my grief in some way. And the result is this book that came out at Beacon Press in 2016. Yeah, what really struck me about it is, well, first of all, from speaking to hospice uh, nurses, palliative care professionals, I know that you are not alone at all in being totally unprepared for a close relative's death. At any age, that seems to happen. But the difference is, you know, you went out and decided to really investigate what was going on, whereas, you know, a lot of people just stay unprepared until next time. And uh, what you discovered really about the system of how people die in America was in some ways even more alarming than your experience with watching your father die and just realizing it was such a big problem and so much thoughtlessness happening there. And I, w I wonder if you could just speak about when it started to dawn on you that the system really doesn't work for perhaps even a majority of people. Oh, God, um, very early on, as soon as you go through the death of a, a parent, um, you're kind of entered into this uh, as an adult, you're kind of entered into a particular category. It's like a club. And I was I was out of the country and sitting on a veranda eating breakfast on a trip. And um, the guy next to me just struck up general conversation about directions. And the next thing you know, we're both weeping about the loss of our fathers. And we went through this whole beautiful conversation that was really helpful to both of us. And at the end, I said, I, I, did I miss this detail? How long ago did your father die? And he said, well, it's been 20 years. And for me, it had been less than a year. And here was this person who was sort of so scarred by the experience 
of having lost his father and the way that his father died 20 years ago, that he was still sitting with another stranger and weeping about how it had happened. And that told me that I was onto something that really needed to be uh, exposed as kind of a drastic word that we, we use it for, I don't know, fraud and, and other things. But there is something incredibly fraudulent in how we address, at least in the theoretical level, right? Like how we address death and dying in this country, because we just don't. Or if we do, we see it in this hallmark sort of they held hands and closed eyes and died together in their sleep sort of way. And anyone who's gone through it knows that it's not that. It is feces and vomit and dirty bedclothes and the anguish of your entire world being turned upside down and the inability to do anything to prevent your loved one from going. And then, of course, the grief on top of it, right? Grief starts long before a loved one is, has died, and their absence is absolutely bewildering to us, and we just don't address those things. So I knew pretty early, like, this was, this was something that needed much more examination on a very public level, because people were suffering for our lack of address. So one thing I, I really appreciated about your book was that, you know, in the sort of death positive community or people who talk about, you know, how to die better, you know, there's a lot of, you know, just sort of like, yeah, just do an advanced directive or two, talk to your family and, you know, you'll you'll have your own like, you know, good death or whatever that means. And, you know, you, you take it a step further and say, no, there's this whole system that's really failing a lot of vulnerable people and we need to fix it for everybody. And I want to actually read one quote from your chapter, Hunger and Thirst, uh, that I think really gets to one of like the more unnerving parts of your critiques of that, you know, you can just solve this as an individual um, ideas that's floating out there where you say, we wrongly believe that we have the freedom to do what we want with our bodies, that our medical choices are our own. Our sense of freedom and independence, particularly in the United States, often blinds us to the ways in which our medical choices are limited. Freedom of choice, personal autonomy, and informed consent are clearly not enough to protect us from futile care or treatment. We don't want, for various reasons and in countless ways, the decisions we make about what is done to our bodies are qualified by forces often seemingly outside our control. Yeah, it's very true. And, and I think the more I read into this uh, or, or reported into this material, the more profound it was to me that simply having the conversation, which is basically the prognosis that comes out of death positivity, we all need to have the conversation. That's not enough because these are gross systemic issues that were designed with inequality, whether it's financial, racial, uh, gendered, whatever, um, built into them. And so we need to disrupt these systems and change them uh, just as, you know, there's a parallel to the conversation we're seeing surrounding uh, incarceration. The ways in which our elders are treated is not fair and not right and not humane. And just having a conversation so that each individual who happens to hear that message can protect themselves is not enough. We have a moral obligation as a society to change the system so that every person can make their own medical decisions. However, that sort of ideas of autonomy cannot disconnect us from community 
Because as we all know, when you receive a terminal diagnosis or any dire medical news, you need community around you, whether it's your family or your friend family. Sometimes family is a little too difficult, right? Um, or, you know, your peer group. You need to be with others. It makes decision-making easier if you're not doing it independently. And so that emphasis on community kind of disrupts the idea that personal choice is everything. It should be protected and should be everything, but also there should be room for community in it. So there was a whole bunch of stuff I just laid down there, but I think all of these things are really important. I loved reporting this book and having sold it, just turning in the final manuscript, seeing all of the death positivity movement gain new ground in the public square. And that was incredibly exciting to me. But my great sadness was that the focus on the dead body and burials, while incredibly important, masks our need to pay attention to the state of dying in the country. A second problem that I've seen is that those who are talking about death and dying tend to be doctors. And so the doctor's experience is very different from a patient's experience. So I like to think that that's what I bring to it. I'm not Otto Gawande, clearly, who's a doctor who starts his book off taking care of his two parents, who are also both doctors. Or, you know, there's a host of other books out there by, by other doctors. And I really wanted to convey the patient experience in a way that had not yet been done. Yeah. And, you know, I found your book to be, you know, a consciousness raising experience. It was very persuasive and that we need a better system for all the people who are dying to be more humane. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts since publication, because you like me, like, you know, I found I cared once I finished your book, but I didn't necessarily know what to do, you know, as just, you know, a person. Um, if you had any recommendations of what, what are effective ways to start putting some pressure on the system to change? Well, um, number one, we can just pay attention to the elders in our lives. I think we too often render them invisible. You know, the old couple down the street that are isolated and we don't check on them. We may shovel their driveway. We may wave high when they drive past, but, you know, we don't really know what's going on in their lives. And so we tell ourselves we're respecting privacy, but what we're actually doing is exempting ourselves from doing that community care work that's really necessary. Uh, very much the same with our elder family members in our need to avoid or not address the death and dying issue. Who can imagine their loved one dying? We don't face the fact that they are indeed declining. I was on the phone last night with a friend who who lives in New York. His father's in Kentucky and he just hasn't gone down. So he's been on the phone with the doctor all day and trying to find a good nursing home and just assumed that his dad would get better and they'd get him, you know, settled in a place and that would be that. And when he told me that the palliative care doctor got him on the phone, I was like, tonight, right now, you need to go. And I think he's a wonderful, compassionate, loving, longtime friend. It was simply that he couldn't fathom his father going through this experience and so just telling our friends and, and the people around us, no, you need to go. That is the most important thing. It's not this work meeting. It's not getting the kids to soccer practice. It's Those things are all so much less important. And we will never regret the time that we spend with our elder loved ones. The other thing is 
fill out your advance directive, find a medical proxy. I don't care how old you are, just do it. It won't save you from all the potential problems that surround death and dying, but it will get you on the path of thinking about it. And it will put you and your family members in those conversations. And that will help. Pay attention to the movements that are taking place in your state to change death and dying, whether it's an aid in dying movement that could legalize access to that medical treatment, or it's an overhaul of the inheritance tax or anything that has to deal with the rights of elders and their medical access. Medicare for all and um, another movement. We know right now that our healthcare system is absolute crisis. It's um, thwarting prevention of increasing illness. So a lot of people in our social circles are not getting regular checkups or particularly taking care of their bodies. They don't have a relationship with a general practitioner. So encourage people. You don't need to spend that money in another place. The most important thing is get a physical at least once a year. When you you know hit 50, then we can discuss escalating that if possible. But we all need to engage with those political systems. We need to change what's taking place now. And we need to highlight the personal pain in families and in communities because it's not addressed. Um, so there's our, there are a couple right now. And I think we've all said, well, the system's not going to change. I just keep to myself. I'm not really political. <laughs> Feminists have been saying this since the 60s and 70s. The personal is political. Your body is a political object in this environment, and we suffer because we fail to see how accessible making that sort of local change, making our voices mean something. It's it's actually not as hard as it seems. Yeah, I really like that idea of just, you know, elders need uh, advocates and they need community, and you can start with the people down the street or who are in your life. You know, that's, that's an important way to see what the real issues are you know, listening on the ground. And, you know, that, that idea of taking death seriously, you know, I had my own moment with that just in the last year, where my father was coming down to visit my 90-year-old grandmother. And, you know, I had a lot of important seeming business meetings that day and said I wasn't going to come, I would come next time. And he just said gently, like, she's losing some appetite and she's in her 90s. Like, my gut is saying it could be soon. Why don't you come? And uh, I did. I cleared the day. And, uh, you know, she died about a week later. And I got to have a beautiful, uh, you know, last conversation with her. I was very lucky she still had her wits about her. And I really value that. And, you know, I think being able to just admit death as a possibility, know a few of the early signs so that you can know what to look for, it's yeah. can help you be proud of, you know, how you handled uh, the passing of a loved one. Yes, I completely agree. And I say all the time, again, this friend of mine, I said last night, you will never regret flying down there and having this time with him. And, you know, when you after his death, you will look back and say, well, maybe that was a wasted trip, but it wasn't wasted. It was, you know, time with him. We never regret making those changes to our schedule or the inconvenience of a flight because it's time with um, someone who will not be in our lives for much longer. It's hugely important. Hey, Hansa, can I read you a quote? Yeah, let's hear it. Okay, this is one by one of our earlier guests on the podcast. As people come closer to death, I have found that only two questions really matter to them. Am I loved? And did I love well? And this is by Frank Ossetesky.
And if you haven't heard the episode by Frank, definitely check it out. Uh, it was one of our very first ones of a super formative episode. I'll just oh, say yeah. about the Frank Ossetesky episode that, that he is the real deal. Like, you know, I've sat bedside so many times, you know, talking to people about what's most important to them then. And there came a moment in the conversation, maybe uh, you could hear it, where I almost cried because he just something about him, like, tore it open, as it were. Yeah, so it was it was a pretty, like, crazy episode to record and really feel so affected by a guest emotionally like that. And this is what, you know, the We Croak movement has, you know, in my mind, always been about. It's about going going deep and having very, very real moments in the midst of our seemingly chaotic, nonstop, uh, never-ending days. So so thank you so much for taking the time, audience, to, uh, to listen to us and, uh, and to follow along. So if you want to support what we're doing with the We Croak app and the We Croak podcast, uh, you can leave a review on iTunes. Uh, you can subscribe, you can tell your friends, and you can also go to our Patreon page and uh, support us there. You know, uh, the We Croak app is just 99 cents once right now, as well as this podcast is free. So if you like what you're, uh, what we're doing, uh, please consider supporting us. So once we talk about you know, changing the system to better reflect our values of, you know, autonomy and stuff like that. Of course, it also becomes a political question. And in your book, you go and you talk to some people and investigate some communities whose values see death and dying very differently than it sounds like you do. For example, you went to a pro-life conference and met a group that was dealing a lot with Terry Schiavo and, you know, keep, wanted to keep her on life support indefinitely. You talk to a disability rights group that really doesn't see autonomy the same way about death that um, a lot of people that I talk to in the death positive community do, basically saying that not wanting to hold on to life until the end is just prejudice against disability. Uh, and once you're there, you'll feel differently, even if you can't speak. And I was wondering, you know, what you thought of that investigation and, you know, those very different values that you investigated in their needs. Yeah, I think I think those two pieces that you mentioned, the the pro-life movement, um, which of course includes not just abortion, although that's the loudest one sometimes, but also the prevention of removal for, of feeding tubes, as well as the disability rights community. I found them both when I was trying to put together kind of the narrative of the past 50 years in healthcare and, and you know, trying to figure out how we got where we are now, where people are dying in facilities, they're dying in pain, family members aren't with them, that, that horrible situation that we're in at the moment. And what I found was that basically during the, the civil rights period, you know, the 60s and early 70s, uh, right about in that time, there was the, we experienced the advent of respirators and defibrillators. And so for the first time in human history, the definition of death was kind of exploded. It was no longer the almost simultaneous end of breathing and heart rate uh, or heart function and brain function. You know, we had respirators that could keep the lungs going indefinitely and defibrillators that could keep the heart going. And so we were left with the brain and we don't really understand much about the brain yet. And so we certainly don't have a consensus on how much brain function determines life or death. 
So that whole range of activity within the brain is kind of a mystery to us. And so the movement to get away from paternity within the medical system, these new um, medical advancements, which are wonderful at saving lives, but I'm in New York. Um, but it also can cause great damage. Where uh, the situation that we were in in that moment became very clear in subsequent, drawn out, high profile cases. The first was Karen Ann Quinlan um, in the 70s, who collapsed and was diagnosed in the very new persistent vegetative state. She was resuscitated, put on a respirator and a feeding tube. And I could go into detail in all of these. They're absolutely fascinating cases, and I write about them in the book. And the second was kind of the the first right-to-die case, that's what it's called, of Nancy Cruzan in Missouri. And the courts then determined that this person who was on a feeding tube had showed us that it was not unconstitutional for her to make her own decisions. So it allowed us the right to remove or deny medical treatments, even if doing so meant certain death. And the third case, of course, is Terry Schiavo. And Terry Schiavo was dying in the spring of 2005 when my father was just experiencing kind of his last great period of health, um, right before he dropped into into disability and, and being bedridden. And so we were all watching this together as a family. And the lessons of that case were political and very alarming to the country. But they also galvanized both the Catholic Church, which has a huge hand in our, our healthcare distribution. They manage like 624 hospitals across the country and more all the time. And they have an influence on our politics as well. We saw that in the fight for Obamacare, where the Catholic Church came in and said, our employees are not going to get coverage for contraception in Catholic hospitals, tubal ligations are not performed, etc. And so I wanted to know what was going on in the pro-life movement. We learn a lot when we compare abortion to, say, the movement for aid and dying. There are a lot of parallel conversations, and that's very easy to say when you see the pro-life movement combining them both as, as pronounced causes. And I first heard the unborn, right, that term, the unborn, which, of course, Donald Trump pulled out in his State of the Union address last night. So at this event I was at, people said the Pledge of Allegiance and mentioned liberty and justice for all, born and unborn. And I was shocked because there was an ideology that was fully formed and galvanized and employed throughout, you know, pro-life movement across the country with high hands and influence on politicians. And so that was a huge lesson. We are not all fighting for the same thing. Some people see pain as redemptive. Some people see removal of a feeding tube as killing a person. And I wanted to understand those underlying understandings of how the world works. With the disability rights folks, I was keeping a blog at the time, kind of working out my book narrative, and ran into this very incredible person named Bill, who is disabled from the waist down and is a professor, brilliant mind, um, but was also very much against aid and dying. And this was because he felt that 
as someone who experienced the medical community intimately for so many years, that he was vulnerable. He was the most vulnerable. Uh, a medical community hell-bent on curing looked at him and saw nothing there. And so he believes very strongly that the legalization of aid and dying jeopardizes the entire disability community. And so spending time with him and the not dead yet folks named after the Monty Python skit, not dead yet, their, their sole cause is to prevent the legalization of aid and dying. And it was hugely enlightening. You know, if I had just written the book and not gone out to those who had different views, I would never have understood kind of the political moment that we're in. I wouldn't have had this insight into, say, Catholic doctors and um, how they privilege particular treatments over, that, over others and certainly over patients' desires. Did either community change how you saw you know, the best way to fix the system of how we die in America? I mean, I, I absolutely sympathize with the disability rights community. I think that while their end purpose of ending aid and dying is misdirected, we should be focused on fixing care for the disabled. We're 25 into 25 years into the Americans with Disabilities Act. And Bill was telling me stories about being invited to speak to a disability group and not being able to get into the building because there was no wheelchair access. So, I mean, it's a tragedy how poor our mental and physical disability treatment and, and care um, is malnourished. Um, we just haven't held our medical industry accountable to that community. And that's on all of us. Um, with the pro-life community, I mean, I come out of a very conservative background. I um, was anti-abortion uh, when I was a kid and handed out chick tracks on the street and thought we were all going to hell for having sex prior to marriage. And quite obviously, that all changed once I, once I grew up and realized how the world worked. But I do have this sympathy for a, a pure ideology and the way that it can blind some to how the world actually works. I believe in community. I, I probably said that word 10 times now since we started recording, but, and I see the power of community um, in many ways. Churches are, you know, are, are, are grassroots supporters of the elderly and infirm, and the Catholic Church is fabulous at managing hospitals. And yet, we know that in many of these evangelical communities, personal rights are completely unimportant. And those who do not comply with a very bastardized idea of traditional family or traditional behavior are outcast. And that's just wrong. Wow. Uh, now, that's a, that's a really, it was an interesting and unexpected portion of your book when you went in and really looked at, well, if we want to change things, what, what is stopping us? What are the other perspectives? And um, I agree, especially with the um, the chapter on the disability rights thinker. I really stopped in my tracks and I had to like think about these arguments very deeply. I'm still processing them, to be totally honest. I'm so uh, glad. I'm so glad. You know, I wrote that chapter and it still makes me cringe a little bit. And I had a I have a friend up at Boston University who teaches the book every semester, I guess every other semester, once a year. And she often has me come up and talk about it. And I was like, you're just bringing me up because you're trolling me, right? Like this chapter, <laughs> this chapter is a really tough chapter. Like I'm not, I'm still not sure it works. And she's like, oh no, the students need to be walked through this. You hold their hand and do it. And it's really me just discovering the whole disability rights 
conversation and I'm pretty vulnerable in going into it because that's what that community required of me. And it was very difficult chapter to write. And I'm glad that that, that's your reaction to it, that you're still holding on to it. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, this, this book came out and it came out a while ago, kind of early and, you know, this movement of rethinking death. And since then, you know, you've been true to the topic. Uh, you've done some more reporting about, you know, the really, I would say, disturbing outcomes when a system is really not, is really failing a lot of people. For example, you recently wrote an article, an article for Harper's Magazine about, uh, I believe the term is uh, mercy killings. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that um, that story was one that I had started watching well before the book came out. So about four years ago, I diligently set up a whole bunch of Google alerts so that I could pay attention to cases that might be related to my work all across the country. And one of the terms I put in was, uh, I was watching Aiden dying, of course, and one of the terms I put into my Google alerts was um, mercy killing. And in reading what showed up in my inbox, I started identifying a pattern of elder white couples who were ending their lives together. And um, most often guns were used and the quote unquote perpetrator was the husband. Um, and many of uh, the newspaper accounts that I found really were using the term mercy killing because they were portraying the death together of this couple as something kind of beautiful and romantic. Like the husband saw his wife with dementia and could not watch her, you know, suffer anymore. And so he shoots her and then he shoots himself. And I was really alarmed by this. I mean, not only just as this is one layer of the horrifying gun violence in the country, um, but also these were elder couples that were in such dire straits. Imagine being a husband and shooting your wife of 30, 40, 50 years. And it was that pain that struck me. And so, you know, two years into watching this, I got in touch with a bunch of scholars and I tried to find um, some people to go on the record and talk to their own personal experience with me. And I had one daughter, an adult daughter of parents who had ended their lives together. And we spent hours on the phone. And when I thought I had placed the story and told her, she really panicked and decided that she could not be that intimate in public. And so I put all this research aside and kept watching the news reports. And I was down home a couple years later um, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, where I'm from. And my sister showed me the cover of the newspaper. And she's like, aren't you writing about this? And there on the cover was a man who had helped his wife die and had tried to end his own life and failed. And he was now being prosecuted under a statute that prevents individuals from assisting a suicide. Um, 34 states have these statutes. Pennsylvania is one of them. So he was arrested and charged for assisting his wife's suicide. And I watched the story go by and tried to get in touch with him through his lawyer and neighbors and, and couldn't. So I ended up just knocking on his door, like a cold knock on a door. And because it's in my neighborhood, like I knew the community and um, the road that he lived on, and it felt very close and comfortable to me. So I wasn't scared necessarily. I just didn't know what I'd find. And I handed Philip a plant when he opened the door and he was a wreck. He was 
sitting on a walker and like in his bed clothes and I could tell he hadn't bathed recently. And I said, I'm so sorry for your loss. And he collapsed into his lap and wept. And I put my arm around him and we've become friends and, and he was willing to give me access to everything. Like I interviewed his psychiatrist, right? So Philip's an incredible person and his story made me realize that he loved his wife very much. She wanted to die. She did not want to be in pain anymore. And so they decided to do what they did. And it kind of blew open this story as I had until then seen it, that, you know, husbands couldn't manage the caretaking and they were just shooting their wives to, to, you know, get her out of her misery. And I realized that there's a whole spectrum. And so then I went back and interviewed scholars and that's what the piece does. It looks at this spectrum of deaths that are taking place across the country, like one every other week. And some are just like Philip and Becky. There's clear consent. They both wanted to die to kind of in the middle where elder husbands are accustomed to speaking for their wives and they kind of usurp their wives' consent to, of course, the far range, which is kind of the epitome of domestic violence where husbands are shooting their wives and, and killing them. And so the piece is hugely informative, but it, I learned a lot of things from it, right? Like you can't make assumptions from the outside in. Um, it's very hard for courts because courts don't know how to address the surviving men if they do survive. Um, there's a guy in Nevada who's incarcerated for 25 years because his wife's family testified against him. And then there's someone like Philip who would not have been helped by legal aid in dying, who couldn't have gone through, I mean, his wife wasn't terminal. She was just so severely disabled that she no longer wanted to live. And the article kind of blows open all of those kind of surface understandings that we have of the plight of elders and identifies the holes that we must fill in if we really do care about their plight. Yeah, it, it makes a very strong case, I have to say, that we have to look first, look closely and carefully and then do something. Because, you know, if couples who've been married for decades are resorting, who love each other, are resorting to measures like that because they feel they don't have other options, we are failing them in a totally yeah. immoral way, in my yeah. opinion. And, you know, it would be so easy. There are so many ways that we could very easily address end-of-life care. Anytime a patrol unit is called out on a wellness check, they could pay attention to what exactly they're seeing in the home. And they're accustomed to doing that in other ways. You know, they're accustomed to identifying domestic violence issues. Maybe they're not good at it, but if they find that they've got two wellness checks in the course of two weeks to a home, there's clearly a problem. Doctors don't tell patients what's going on with their health. They're not very good at giving terminal diagnoses. Um, and that's because we just don't teach that in medical school. You know, I say this all the time, if it were up to me, every medical student would at least spend one semester as a hospice volunteer. So the first time they see a dying person isn't when they're an intern in the hospital. The um, church life, you know, churches can do a better job of identifying seniors who are on their own. Uh, and so there are myriad ways that we do interact with people who are in dire straits or who are losing their capacities and who just need more attention and care or a simple question, do you need groceries? You know, elders can 
really be malnourished because they simply can't get to the grocery store. So there are simple things that we can do systemically and on our own to address this. Yeah, I think that's that's a beautiful vision. And I was wondering if our last couple minutes, there were any other, you know, what is your vision for how dying could be different in America? Like if you got to design the system from the ground up today, knowing what you know, what would it look like? Oh God, that's a tough question. I think as as many qualms as I have with the hospice program, it's a regional program. Um, about half of us die in hospice, but I would want to improve the length of stay. I would want doctors and nurses to help elders get into hospice sooner. I would like to see a home health care program covered by insurance. Um, at the moment, the greatest oversight that we've got is that people who need help in their homes just can't afford it. They don't know how to get it. And so we have long-term um, life insurance, but nobody, it, it, that program exists, but nobody buys it because the chances of needing it, you know, insurance doesn't work that way. We Human beings actually don't work that way. Um, we don't think about our infirmity and, and plan ahead when, you know, when we're 30. Um, but I would like to see the government establish a program that assists families in the home. Not only do we need, you know, daycare, um, that sort of thing for, for mothers who are doing caretaking of their children, but we also need something comparable for elders who, who have needs and need to stay in their homes. As soon as, in many cases, as soon as we take people out of their homes, they become disoriented. And, and so that kind of home healthcare program is vital and would go a long way in shoring up the well-being of, of seniors across the country. But yes, we just need a more realistic portrayal of death and dying. What is it, something like 75% of resuscitations on TV as they're portrayed in, in TV shows are successful. And I think the real percentage of successful resuscitation, you know, by paramedics on the street is something like 20%. So we're, we're fooling ourselves in how people really die. And that's an enormous disservice. It's just that our, our media is telling us the wrong thing. So I don't know, those are a couple things. Um, we need universal healthcare, just hands down. The Black community, people of color are not getting health care um, because they proportionately just don't have jobs that provide it. Um, so they're not getting preventive care. Uh, the way that we reserve health care for those who can pay for it is a horrifying system that is absolutely unjust, particularly when those in low-income positions are you know, structured to stay there. Um, structured to stay in these low service jobs. And so we just need a more equitable system of taking care of the health of everyone. Well, I think that's a beautiful vision. Thank you so much for being on our podcast today. It's a pleasure well, to talk to you. Thank you. Once again, your book, The Good Death, An Exploration of Dying in America. I definitely recommend it. It's a fearless look at <laughs> what we're really doing today. <laughs> Um, and Thanks, Hansa. And if reading. I can, if I can plug the Harper's piece, it's in the February uh, 2019 issue of Harper's Magazine. So go grab it and read about Philip and Becky Benight, who decided to end their lives together. Thank you so much. Before we go, 
Thank you so much for the amazing reviews you have left us on iTunes. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that. And if you haven't already, be sure to join us on Patreon, because the next batch of We Croak Live Immediately mugs is heading out now.